Hi, I'm Jonathan Hafitz, and welcome to Law and Film, a podcast that explores the rich connections between law and film. Law is critical to many films. Films, in turn, tell us a lot about the law. In each episode, we'll examine a film that's noteworthy from a legal perspective. What issues does the film explore? What does it get right about the law? And what does it get wrong? How is law important to understanding the film? And what does the film teach us about the law and about the larger social and cultural context in which the law is embedded? Our film today is the 1961 movie, Judgment at Nuremberg. The film was written and directed by Stanley Kramer, and the film contains an all-star cast, including Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Maximilian Schell, who won an Oscar for it, Richard Widmark, Marlena Dietrich, Judy Garland in her first role since A Star is Born seven years before, Montgomery Clift, and a young William Shatner. The film was originally a play in 1959 that was broadcast on the television program Playhouse 90 with a script by Abby Mann. The film is based on the real story of one of the trials at the U.S. military tribunal in Nuremberg, United States first Allstadter, which is also named the judge's case or the justice case, because those who were prosecuted were judges, prosecutors, or ministerial officers of the Nazi judicial system. It was the third of 12 trials before the Nuremberg Military Tribunal. The case involved multiple defendants from the German judicial and prosecutorial system. There were three judges, all from the United States, and the trial took place from March to December of 1947. The trial found most defendants guilty, although several were acquitted. A number of them received life sentences, although by the time the film was released in 1961, all of them had been released from prison. The film is an important exploration of issues emanating from the Holocaust and the Nazi regime and the role of international criminal law in adjudicating guilt and innocence and shifting from a time of war to a time of peace. Our guest today to explore this important film is Kevin John Heller, one of the leading experts in the field in the world. Kevin John Heller is a professor of international law and security at the University of Copenhagen Center for Military Studies. He currently serves as special advisor to the International Criminal Court Prosecutor for International Criminal Law Discourse and is an academic member of Dottie Street Chambers in London. Kevin holds a PhD in law from Leiden University and a JD with distinction from Stanford Law School. His books include The Nuremberg Military Tribunals and The Origins of International Criminal Law, published by Oxford University Press in 2011, and The Hidden Histories of War Crimes Trials, also published by Oxford, edited with Jerry Simpson. He's co-edited several other books and is a founder and contributor to the influential international law blog, Opinio Juris. Kevin's been involved in the international criminal courts negotiations over the crime of aggression, worked as Human Rights Watch's external legal advisor on the trial of Saddam Hussein, and served for three years as one of uh, Radovan Karadzic's formerly appointed legal associates at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Kevin is a leading expert, not just in international criminal law, but on the Nuremberg trials, and in particular on the U.S. military tribunals at Nuremberg. I'm thrilled to have him on Law and Film today. Welcome, Kevin. 
Thank you so much for having me. I it, it's nice to have a chance to come and uh, discuss a, a film that is very near and dear to my heart. And if you, if there was video, I, I would shift my computer and show you that I actually have an original 1961 poster of Judgment at Nuremberg right on my wall. So particularly happy with today's film. Before we start on the film, I just want to take a moment to pay tribute to the late Ben Ferencz, who recently passed away at age 102. Ben was the last surviving prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials and was a prosecutor at the U.S. military tribunals that followed the international tribunal of the major Nazi war criminals and was the lead prosecutor for the Eitzengruppen case, which was the prosecution of the mobile death squads that killed millions of people, Jews, Roma, communists, dissidents, others, and actually about a third of the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were killed by this, uh, by the uh, security unit. So uh, he was a, also was a major contributor to the development of the International Criminal Court and became kind of a fixture in international law circles over the years his famous motto, law, not war. I had the opportunity to meet him several times and felt like you were meeting a piece of history. So I'm sure you had a chance to interact with him as well over the years. So I just want to take a moment to pay tribute to him. Thank you. That's very nice of you to do that. He was a pretty amazing guy. So Kevin, when did you first see Judgment at Nuremberg? I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. Um, I certainly saw it long before I ever became interested in, in Nuremberg and the Nuremberg military tribunals. I would have seen it at some time as a young adult. I, I think I, I saw it because I've always been, although he's kind of heavy handed and not great technically, always a huge fan of Stanley Kramer. You know, I loved Inherit the Wind, not a perfect movie. I loved On the Beach, you know, the, the nuclear war movie. He, you know, I was really interested in those like 60s and 70s movies that had such powerful, you know, and very overt <laughs> political messages. And so Judgment of Nuremberg was very much part of that series of movies that he made. So again, couldn't pick the exact year, but definitely during that era of my interest in film. Yeah, I, in that in that sense, he's almost a perfect person for this type of film to try to capture the different issues that are going around. And those are other great message movies. How did it affect you when you saw it? I did always have kind of an interest in the Holocaust, partly, you know, as a as you know the as as a Jew whose whose ancestors came from Eastern Europe and Russia. I don't recall having any kind of particular emotional reaction to it other than thinking, wow, for 1961, in the middle of the Cold War, boy, it's brave to make a movie like this that, you know, deals so forthrightly with a major trial, which shows, you know, pressure, the Berlin blockade that actually shows, and I'm sure you'll come back to this, real film that was shown during the, the actual main Nuremberg trial. It just struck me as an incredibly gutsy movie and, and, and dealing in a really serious way with an issue that wasn't forbidden, really, but certainly had never been talked about quite so openly. So I, I think that was really the bravery, I think, was my basic reaction. That's a great point. And it does make mention or reference to some of the trends of the era in terms of McCarthyism. We'll play it later, but in Spencer Tracy, when he gives the verdict at mm -hmm. the end of the case, there's a, a not oblique reference to 
trends that are going on in the United States in terms of what people will do in the excesses that they'll make in terms of defensive country. You know, just to add to that, I think what was also so fascinating about it and also struck me at the time when I first watched it was the willingness to to not sugarcoat America's own record with a number of these things and actually weaving in the fact that America had done some incredibly awful things, not dissimilar to the Nazis, although not mass murder in the same way, um, but in terms of persecution, to show that in a movie in 1961 and to show the American kind of war criminal officials actually putting pressure on the judges and prosecutors. I mean, that was particularly gutsy as well. Yeah, there's that a moment or there are multiple moments, but one where the defense attorney, Hans Rolf, played by Maximilian Schell, references the U.S. sterilization program. Like that's one of the things you may be referring to, right? And yeah. uh, he refers to a famous Supreme Court case, uh, Buck versus Bell, an opinion by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes dissenting, where he says that infamous line, three generations of idiots is, is enough, right? And so the connection, which is real between the U.S. racial purity views and sterilization and the Nazi regime. So yeah, it is, it is really gutsy to do that in a mainstream movie like this was in 1961. What was the historical context for the trial that's depicted in the film? Well, as you said, this film dramatizes one of the 12 American military tribunal trials held after the main Nuremberg trial. I call them the Nuremberg Military Tribunals. They were held basically between 1946 and 1949. And this one was based on the justice case. And the justice case was the third one in the series of 12. It was actually always designed to be the third one in the series of 12. And it was, as you as you said in the introduction, really an opportunity to put on trial the really systematic perversion of the legal system by the Nazis and the willing participation in that system by so many judges prosecutors, ministerial officials, and so on. So in that sense, it really is just a fictional look at a, at, a, at, a, at a very similar, although not completely similar trial. What's kind of interesting about the fact that Abby Mann and Stanley Kramer focused on the justice trial is although with hindsight, we actually look at this trial as being one of the most important, like, oh, you know, look, they're actually prosecuting judges and prosecutors. And we've had some issues with that in the United States. At the time, there was very little attention paid to the justice case. I don't remember the exact dates of the trial, but it was certainly not one of the ones that was a big uh, billboard type trial. I think there was much more interested in the first trial of the doctors. There was a lot of interest in the trial, obviously, of corporations like Farben, you know, who had created the cyanide gas, the Zyklon B for the concentration camps, the Einsatzgruppen trial, which, you know, they called the biggest murder trial in history. The justice trial really didn't receive all that much attention at the time. Um, and I wish, I don't know, I wish I knew precisely why um, Abby Mann had been originally attracted to this trial and then why Stanley Kramer picked it up and made a movie out of it. But that's a little bit about the historical background. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. I mean, certainly it lent a lot of dramatic possibility or different dramatic possibilities than some of the other trials. The Eisengruppen trial would have been a more kind of black and white story that said more moral complexity. Can you say just a little bit more about the importance of these military tribunals. I mean, this is a subject of your acclaimed book, because when most people think of Nuremberg, they think of the IMT or the International Military Tribunal, the first in the main Nazi war crimes trial involving the Allied powers sitting in judgment at Nuremberg. But these subsequent proceedings were also important, right? 
I mean, I'm a little biased, <laughs> but I, I think not only are they important, I think in many ways they're more important than the main Nuremberg trial. I mean, symbolically, perhaps not as important, but I, I've often said that if the main Nuremberg trial gave birth to international criminal law, these trials really nursed international criminal law into its adolescence, because really the difference was that these trials were much more criminal law <laughs> in some ways than the main trial. These were the trials that really tried to give some meat to the jurisprudence of international criminal law, like defining the elements, the mens rea and the actus reus of the various crimes, thinking through in a systematic way what the modes of participation were in crimes, what the defenses were to crimes. So much of the jurisprudence that we have today owes its origins to these trials and really not much to the to the IMT trial. The IMT trial was much more about the history, probably because of the massive illegality of you know um, most of the defendant's actions. But if you go back to the main IMT judgment, there's not a lot of law in there. Partly that's because there was no law before that, but partly it was just the nature of the trial. So these 12 trials really gave the judges an opportunity and, and really required them to think through a whole range of criminal law issues that we really had to have thought through in order to have a modern system of international criminal justice. So I think that's really where their importance comes from. You've got the larger general architecture, and then you've got the real building that starts going on here in this trial. Precisely. Well, what was the issue, or what were the issues in the justice case? What were the charges? <laughs> and the film talks about this a little bit. A little bit. So, I mean, basically, there were four charges. The first one was kind of a general conspiracy to commit war crimes and crimes against humanity charge, and those you found in all, basically all 12 of the cases. Count two and count three were then the actual war crimes and crimes against humanity that were the objects of the conspiracy. And so the war crimes charges really focused on the defendant's role in the night and fog program, the stealing away of civilians from occupied territory, bringing them back to Germany, subjecting them to essentially show trials and special courts, and then usually executing them. And then the third count was the crimes against humanity one. And that really focused on how the Nazi judicial system persecuted Jews and others within Germany and basically created a reign of terror to avoid any kind of political opposition to the Nazis. The fourth count, which you don't really see in the movie, was about membership in the in the SS and the SD and the other organizations that had been deemed criminal at the main Nuremberg trial. So those were the four. There's a whole bunch of other really interesting aspects of it. I think one thing that doesn't appear at all in the movie, which I actually find kind of surprising, is in the justice judgment, you get probably the most sustained discussion of genocide which at that time was still a crime against humanity, but by far the most searching understanding or analysis of genocide as a crime against humanity. And in fact, two of the defendants in the real trial, Rothog and Lautz, are actually convicted of genocide, even though it's not even mentioned in the indictment. So I think you can look back at these trials and say these were the first two convictions for the modern concept of genocide in the history of international criminal law, yet you don't actually really even see any of that in the movie. That's a fascinating point, really important to bring out, because at the time, you know, most people think of the Nazi prosecutions in Nuremberg as genocide prosecutions, but genocide was not, had not been recognized as a crime. It was in a somewhat nascent state, and the acts were prosecuted at the time under this charge of crimes against humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the great 
kind of jurisprudential legacies of the actual trial was in dicta, <laughs> um, but the affirmation that there, that there was no nexus requirement, that you did not have to have a connection between crimes against humanity and the war, that some acts were so malevolent, and this, the malevolent is actually the word that's used in the justice judgment, that some acts are simply so malevolent that the international community has an interest in them, even in peacetime. Um, again, pure dicta, but really our modern understanding of genocide in many ways comes from this trial. So I think it's just kind of interesting that it's absent from the movie itself, when as lawyers, we would probably immediately hone in on that as being the most important contribution that the trial made to modern international criminal law. It's a really important legal issue that doesn't come through. One of the interesting questions surrounds individual guilt, and one of those memorable moments in the film is when the chief prosecutor, name in the film is Tad Lawson, the real prosecutor in the case was Telford Taylor, played by Richard Widmark, presents actual footage of the concentration camp. And this prompts an impassioned speech by Hans Rolf, played by Maximilian Schell, the defense counsel, which then in turn prompts testimony from his client, the main defendant depicted in the movie, Ernst Yanning, played by Burke Lancaster, which undercuts the defense or his own defense by acknowledging responsibility, at least in certain respects. So I'm going to play a little bit of the clip first of the defense counsel. May it please the tribunal. Yesterday, the tribunal witnessed some films. They were shocking films, devastating films. As a German, I feel ashamed that such things could have taken place in my country. There can never be a justification for them not in generations, not in centuries. But I do think it was wrong, indecent, and terribly unfair of the prosecution to show such films in this case, in this court, at this time, against these defendants. And I cannot protest too strongly against such Catholics. What is the prosecution trying to prove? Is he trying to prove that the German people as all were responsible for these events? Or that they were even aware of them? Because if he is, he's not stating facts. And he knows he's not. The secrecy of the operations, the geographical location of the camps, the breakdown of communications in the last days of the war, when the exterminations rose into the millions, show only too clearly that he is not telling the truth. The truth is that these brutalities were brought about by the few extremists, the criminals. Very few German knew what was going on. Very few, none of us knew what was happening. The place is shown on these films. None of us. But the most ironic part of it is that the prosecution showed these films against these defendants. Men who stayed in power for one reason only, to prevent worse things from happening. Who is the braver man? The man who escapes or resigns in times of peril? Or the man who stays on his post at the risk of his own personal safety? The defense will present witnesses and letters and documents from religious and political refugees all over the world telling how Ernst Janning saved them from execution. The defense will show the many times Ernst Janning was able to effect mitigation of sentences, but without his influence, the results would have been much worse. The defense will show that Ernst Janning's personal physician was a non-Aryan, a Jewish man 
who he kept in attendance much to his own peril. And now I'm going to play a clip of the testimony of Ernst Janning, Burt Lancaster responding. It is not easy to tell the truth. But if there is to be any salvation for Germany, we who know our gift must admit it. Whatever the pain and humiliation, my counsel would have you believe we were not aware of the concentration camps. Not aware. Where were we? Where were we when Hitler began shrieking his hate and Reichstag? Where were we when our neighbors were being dragged out in the middle of the night to Dachau? Where were we when every village in Germany has a railroad terminal, where cattle cars were filled with children being carried off to their extermination? Where were we when they cried out in the night to us? Are we deaf, dumb, blind? My counsel says we were not aware of the extermination of the millions. He would give you the excuse. We were only aware of the extermination of the hundreds. Does that make us any the less guilty? Maybe we didn't know the details. But if we didn't know, it was because we didn't want to know. Traitor! Traitor! So, Kevin, can you help unpack the connection between individual and collective guilt in this context and what, well, what the defense was trying to do and the response it prompted? Oh, simple, easy question. I, I think the first thing to note is that this is fictional. They're, they did not play the concentration camp video during the actual justice trial. They did play very famously this video during the main Nuremberg trial. And, and you might recall that Goering said it ruined the whole trial for him. Um, but so obviously they borrowed that from the main trial and imported it kind of, you know, artistic license here. I, I suppose the prosecution is simply trying to impress upon the court the, the true horrors of the Nazis of which these men did play a role. Again, we look back in such a, a media-saturated age where we've all seen, you know, endless photos and videos and documents about the Nazis. And of course, you know, we all know, we all know about the horrors of the Nazis. But this was much newer back then. I mean, particularly at the time of these trials, you know, you didn't have uh, you know, the internet, you, di you didn't have global telecommunications, you know, you basically learned about the atrocities from hearing the witnesses, maybe your newspaper published a couple of very sanitized photos, people didn't know in a visceral way, as opposed to a completely abstract way, just how horrible the Nazis were. So I think that part of the reason that they would have fictionally inserted this into the movie is really to illustrate that this was new, <laughs> that this was an incredibly important way to convey in a visceral way just what had really happened. Now, <laughs> that said, <laughs> you know, I I'm actually quite sympathetic to the defense position here, and not because I've spent most of my career as a defense attorney. There is a pretty strong argument that this kind of film would have been very prejudicial. You know, and again, we don't have a jury in the same way that we would have in an American courtroom. We just have professional judges. But the horrors of which these defendants were accused were really not connected to the concentration camps. You know, these were about like show trials that led to summary executions, which is a terrible thing, but is not the same as hundreds of naked bodies being stacked up after they've been gassed in a chamber. It's not clear what relevance this kind of video has to these particular defendants. You know, and I think it's interesting, and this movie comes out 
1961, which is, as we both know, right in the middle of the Eichmann trial in Israel. And one of the ongoing complaints, and I think very fair complaints about the Eichmann trial, is that it was just an endless parade of witnesses talking about horrible things that happened to them that had no connection to Eichmann at all. None of the, these witnesses were talking about things that Eichmann did to them. It was just about the horrors of the Nazis. And a lot of scholars have said, again, those who were very sympathetic to the prosecution in general, that yeah, this was probably over the top. It was probably prejudicial. So I, I think you see a little bit of that here as well. And, and I am quite sympathetic to the defense attorney when he's complaining about at least some aspects of the decision to show this footage. Showing the footage operates on multiple levels. It operates within the drama itself, and then it operates in a way of showing the public what happened and giving a platform to the public in 1961 or a way for the public to view in a wider sense, as you're saying, Precisely. Uh, what happened. And then again, when the film first airs on television in 1965, before Sunday night at the movies, when they used to show films on TV before cable, before streaming. And the film is shown before millions of people. And it's interrupted remarkably by the protests in Selma, Alabama, and the Bloody Sunday, where the police beat protesters. So they interrupt the broadcast of Judgment Nuremberg in 1965 on ABC, you know, one of the three national stations yeah. at the time, to show this footage, which also resonates with the film in terms of what you're saying in terms of America's responsibility. But between the film as it's shown in 1961 and then the broadcast in 1965, it does help broadcast in a wider sense Nazi atrocities, which may have been less known about or less saturated in terms of their dissemination across popular culture. Yeah, I don't know for a fact, but even in 1961, I would have I would think that an awful lot of Americans who tuned in or 65 tuned in to watch this on TV would never have seen videos like that. They probably would have known more than people in 1947, <laughs> um, and they might have seen more, you know, ghastly photos. But I, I would think that this would have been pretty shocking to an American TV going public. In terms of individual responsibility, what's the central argument for holding? these defendants responsible because they're using, as you say, in, in a way that may be prejudicial, the prosecution's using the film to show where this all ultimately led, right? To the gas chamber, uh, to concentration camps, to mass extermination. But what was the role of the defendants? What was the legal theory for why they were responsible? You talked a little bit about the charges, or what's the defense's main argument as to why these defendants should not be held responsible? Well, I think the defense's main argument is actually, you know, portrayed fairly well in the movie, that their argument is these were validly enacted laws um, not to be questioned by judges and prosecutors, that their job was to apply them, um, and that maybe in their heart of hearts they opposed them, or maybe even in their heart of hearts they agreed with them, but that didn't matter, that the, they were just neutral judicial and prosecutorial officials doing their job. I don't think <laughs> that defense has a lot of support in the actual record. And, and I think if you go back and look at the original trial, I mean, again, it's complicated because the trial brought together a whole bunch of, of different types of roles. But the ministerial officers were often the ones who were writing these incredibly perverse laws. You know, the judges were not simply just neutrally applying the laws, but they were actively interpreting them in different ways. They Sometimes they made them even worse. Prosecutors pursued cases that they knew full well didn't actually have any evidence behind them. 
what I think Telford Taylor and his team did really well was show precisely that these were not <laughs> neutral officials just following the law, that they were actively participating in what the indictment calls a nationwide and government organized system of cruelty and injustice, you know, that they were not passive participants, they were active participants. And, and, and I can give you a really good example of this. So in the film, one of the main subplots is, of course, the um, the Judy Garland character, where a Jewish man's accused of having sexual relations with a, an underage woman, which would have violated the law at the time. So the real case is called, I think it was the, the Katzenberger case, basically the same kind of, of factual situation. But what's really interesting about it is that the judge in that case, the real judge in that case, at the time, a violation of um, this particular law only had um, like a seven-year sentence attached to it, yet he imposed the death penalty. And he did so under like a, a really, really strained argument, which was, well, there was another law that might have applied that said if you violated one of the Nuremberg laws during a like an official blackout period, you could be given the death penalty. And there was one witness who testified that at one point in time, the woman who the Judy Garland character was based on actually might have gone to the defendant's house at night, that that was an aggravating factor and sentenced him to death. So again, this wasn't just the real judge applying laws as they were written. It was he was playing an active role in bringing about the death penalty that, that he wanted to achieve from the very, very beginning. So we can multiply that over and over and over again, that again, these were not just passive participants in the system, but actively played a role in perverting, you know, what was before that a very sophisticated and very enlightened judicial system. I think that judge was Owald Rothag, right? Yeah, I think it was Rothag. Just to add to that, he was known for his viciousness. And apparently in real life, <laughs> this case even upset some of his Nazi buddies <laughs> that like oh, that right. they thought that he had gone too far and he was actually transferred out of the judiciary not long thereafter and given more of a ministerial job because he was just a little too enthusiastic about perverting the laws in order to to execute people the, the rest of the country wasn't with him yet and he was a, yes, little, exactly. a little early so yeah he was i think describes an evil sadistic man who had no reservations there's another defendant in the case not Burt Lancaster Yannick, who's just unrepentant, and that's maybe modeled on Owald Ruthag. You said the relationship, and this is a, a key subplot where Judy Garland is the younger woman who has the relationship with the older Jewish man, or alleged relationship with the older Jewish man, who's then executed, and they hammer home that someone saw her sitting on his lap. But it's not the age. The film kind of glosses over the age. Judy Garland is not meant to be 19, which I think was the age of the woman at the time. But it's the fact that she was Aryan and he was Jewish, right? It was a, it was the, ra it was the racial mixture aspect. Yeah. So it was charged as a violation of the racial defilement law. So yeah, I think they emphasize the age to make it a, a little creepier, I suppose. Right, right, exactly. And there's of course no evidence that they actually did ever have a relationship. And you know, until her death in like 1984, she insisted over and over and over again that he was a father figure to her and nothing else. 
Ernst Yanning is meant to be one of the more sympathetic of the judges. They called them the hesitant judges. To the extent they went along with the Nazi program, it's because they had to. There was no higher law, even within Germany, that they could have appealed to. They were applying the positive law. They were just diehard positivists. And they were under also tremendous pressure, right? If they didn't go along, they might be sacked or removed from office. And there's the moment where they try to paint Ernest Yanning is more sympathetic. His position was Jewish. He wasn't really anti-Semitic. How does the film kind of grapple with these questions about holding individuals like Ernest Yanning, played by Burke Lancaster, responsible when they were in this difficult position and when they weren't really directly responsible for the mass atrocities that are shown in the film within the film? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of said it, right? They really paint the yawning figure as a as a tragic figure, that this was someone who had done so many good things and had been such a legendary jurist and had contributed so much to German law. And look, now all of a sudden he finds himself in this situation where, you know, he's sentencing people he knows are innocent to death. They paint him as really tragic. And I think this is almost one of the most unrealistic aspects of the movie. From a historical perspective, none of the judges in the actual trial fit this description as this, you know, witty, urbane, deeply educated judge. They were much more like the Rothaus, <laughs> who everybody was afraid of. So that's more of an invention. But what I think is really legally interesting is, in fact, when we talk about aggravating factors at sentencing in these trials, you didn't need many <laughs> because the crimes were usually so bad that you didn't really have to worry about a personal factor that aggravated the sentence. But one of the things that the tribunals, not the justice tribunal, but other tribunals, particularly ministries, pointed out, they actually viewed being incredibly educated and intelligent and culturally sophisticated and accomplished as an aggravating factor. So one of the defendants famously was an opera singer. And, and they're like, he's an opera singer. He's traveled all over the world singing. He's worked with all of these various people of different races and religions and you know, so on and so forth. And yet he participated in mass murder. For them, that wasn't tragic. That actually made it worse because he was supposed to know better. You know, and, and I think from my own perspective, I actually find the, the way that the tribunals approach this to be more persuasive than how the film portrays it. I don't see it as tragic. I see it as you more than anyone else should have known better. And that the fact that you made no attempt to resist counts much more against you than, you know, your ordinary foot soldier or even your ordinary kind of like sadistic psychopath who we expect nothing else from. So I think that's an interesting juxtaposition between how the film does it and how the actual trials might have approached it. Is that how Spencer Tracy views it at the end? Because he's ultimately, he's a chief judge. There are three judges, but he's the one who is really kind of sitting in judgment in the film that... They should have known better, that more should have been expected of uh, of the judges in his mind. Yeah, no, I, you're right. I, I think there's definitely an aspect of that in the Spencer Tracy one. I agree with that. But I, I still like his final line when Yanning says that it hadn't got that far <laughs> yet. And so what he was doing was not as bad. And the Spencer Tracy replies, well, the first time that you sentenced a person to death who you knew was innocent, it had got that far. That's a very powerful moment. Yeah, I think it is the most powerful moment in the film. Let me play it quickly now. Those people, those millions of people, I never knew it would come to that. You must believe it. You must believe it. It came to that the first time you sentenced a man to death, you knew to be innocent. 
as you said, it's the idea that once you knowingly sentence an innocent man to die, you're on the road to at least the possibility of the horrors that come. One of the other things the film captures, I think, quite well, are the political pressures around the prosecution and the judges to not find the defendants criminally responsible. So what were the pressures and how real were they? So, I mean, I, I liked, I really, as I said earlier, I really liked the fact that we see this in the movie because um, this is actually incredibly realistic and it's realistic in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, during the trials, you had the blockade of Berlin. You had, you know, increasing tension between the Soviets and the Americans. And there are records of many of the judges really being terrified that at any moment during the trial, the, the Soviets were going to break down the doors of the courtroom and imprison them or do something worse to them. At least one judge quite openly admitted that he didn't want to be too punitive against the defendants because the U.S. was going to need a rearmed Germany uh, against the rising Soviet threat. I mean, he was very forthright and he shocked his fellow judges by literally admitting this during trial. So at that level, clearly they were very aware of the larger geopolitical stakes and even, again, fearing for their own personal safety at the hands of the Soviets, which that was probably overblown. But I suppose at the time they didn't know that. But beyond that, it is extremely accurate to say that there was a lot of pressure as time went on, particularly as the trials dragged out from kind of the, you know, the uh, American war crimes officials fairly unsubtly making it clear that they didn't want a lot of really high-ranking Nazis going to jail for a really, really long period of time, uh, you know, just in case the, you know, they really needed the Germans again. Now, those pressures were not so much about the judges, but they were very much about the industrialists. <laughs> they really, they, you know, the allied war crimes officials really were not comfortable with Telford Taylor charging Farben and Krupp and the Flick Combine because of the role that these industrialists were going to have to play during the Cold War. And also very much the generals, because the generals were seen probably as the most sympathetic by the German public. They were really opposed to the prosecution of the generals that they saw as war heroes. And the Allied war crimes officials were very, very loath to, you know, to put them away for a long time and, and, and turn them against the US. So all that was really very much a part of these trials. And, and you can't separate them from the fact that we're talking about the late 40s and, and really the beginning of the Cold War uh, in a way that the IMT didn't have, because, of course, the Russians were still the Soviets were still participating in it. You know, and it's worth noting just historically that most people think of the Nuremberg trial. And, and there is only one major Nuremberg trial for powered allies, but it was not supposed to be a one-off. <laughs> it was supposed to be a series of four power trials, <laughs> starting with the, the one that we actually have and going on at least three and perhaps even five or six. That was the original idea. But it became quite evident, even during the main Nuremberg trial, that the relationship between the Soviets and particularly the British and the Americans was so bad that there was just no appetite <laughs> to have you know, another four power trial. And that was why we have these zonal trials. The agreement was, OK, we're not going to hang out together and do these trials. <laughs> So but we need more trials. Everybody agreed on that. So the solution was, OK, well, you can prosecute any war criminal found in your zone of occupation. The Soviets, Americans, British and the French. 
The Americans were the ones who did the most famous trials, the ones we're talking about. The British never had a zonal trial because they proceeded under the royal warrant. Instead, the French tried a couple of industrialists and the Soviets tried a whole bunch of people. But until very recently, we didn't really even know anything about that. But really, the existence of the justice trial is owed to the fact that there were these rising Cold War pressures because they weren't supposed to be zonal trials. They were supposed to be four power trials. That's really fascinating, the history to overlay on the film. I mean, there's so much going on there. And of course, the defendants had all been released by 1961, like several yeah, years that, And that was that. absolutely a result of the Cold War. <laughs> it's interesting, too, the, the film hits both points you mentioned. One, in terms of the military generals, where you have Marlena Dietrich, who was married to a general who was executed in the earlier tribunals, and she's meant to be a sort of sympathetic character and is talking about the need to move on and to not hold individuals responsible. That's the other element, I think, of these trials. One, you have the Cold War pressure you talked about, but then you also have the idea for Germany's own psyche, right? It's better to forget and instead to kind of look ahead. Yeah. I mean, you you can connect this right to the, the premiere of the movie, you know, in Berlin in, in late 1961, the contemporary reports said that basically all the non-Germans loved the movie and the Germans sat strangely silent during it and didn't applaud at the end, you know, because this was one of the first really, you know, major entertainment events that would have dramatized not just the Nazis, but complicity with the Nazis. So yeah, that's the other side of the coin, right? On the one hand, you have the rising Cold War. On the other hand, you have really a very deliberate and I would say very cynical um, campaigns by ordinary Germans, particularly churches and German war vets, to try to delegitimize the trials and to try to insist upon, again, particularly the generals, you know, being these kind of noble warriors who were just caught up in this evil government. There was a, a whole bunch of polling done after the war about ordinary Germans' attitudes toward, I mean, all manners of issues. But a lot of them were about the Nuremberg trials and the subsequent trials and their perceptions of Jews and of national socialism. And it's pretty shocking <laughs> how long it took for ordinary Germans to really kind of reconcile themselves to not just what the Nazis had done, but to the, the moral, if not legal complicity of ordinary Germans in this. I mean, it really wasn't until probably the 1970s that German attitudes really started to shift. As the trials went on, most ordinary Germans liked national socialism more, had an even worse view of Jews than they had before the trials. Like they learned a lot. They actually did. The polling showed that they learned a lot more about concentration camps and the Nazi government, but it didn't really fundamentally affect their attitudes. They didn't become more hostile to national socialism. They didn't become more attracted to democracy. So all of the the kind of pedagogical goals of the trial. And Telford Taylor was very clear that he wanted these trials to have a pedagogical impact on ordinary Germans, just didn't pan out. And, and that is reflected in this kind of, again, as I said, this kind of cynical, deliberate campaign that is waged really, you know, from 1949 on until the last prisoner is released to delegitimize the trials. 
it's a really an amazing story the way that memory works and with collective guilt. And I think in that sense, the statement by the defense attorney, Hans Rolf, is in a way accurate, right? That he's saying it's not the men who are on trial, it's Germany who's on trial. And I think in some way, that's actually a goal. That's a pedagogical goal of the film, perhaps, to say, you know, what is Germany's responsibility? And I think ultimately it comes down kind of where Ernst Janning is, is, you know, we, we knew, we knew enough, right? What did ordinary Germans know? And, and that seems to be an important aspect of the film. Yeah. You know, one of the, I think, most powerful critiques of international criminal law generally is the fact that it tends to individualize guilt, right? We don't put, you know, whole groups of people on trial anymore, particularly, at least not like they did, you know, at Nuremberg. We insist that guilt is individual and, and rightly so. But you know, we're not talking about bank robberies. We're talking about mass murder requiring the participation of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people and the passive acquiescence of the population. And so I'm very sympathetic to this idea that international criminal law obscures the kind of structural violence that gives rise to atrocity because you can't put an entire country on trial. And so you wouldn't see a lot of the things that you see in the movie in an actual trial but at least from a moral standpoint, maybe you should precisely to avoid that kind of depoliticization and individualization that is inherent to these liberal legal trials, as Judith Sklar famously described them. I think there's a lot to that. We talked about the film's impact at the time it was made or around that time. How do you think it's aged? And how does it speak to us today? I mean, right, it's an important international criminal law moment, obviously for horrible reasons with Russia's aggression against Ukraine, atrocities in Ukraine, a lot of activity around international criminal law, trying to create some kind of new Nuremberg moment. Uh, so is the film still relevant? I mean, how does it speak to events that are going on now? I think the film is very relevant. You know, as an actual film, I don't think it's aged particularly well. I mean, you know, it has in the sense that it was, you know, that they actually shot, you know, in the, the ruins of Nuremberg and used some of the original sites. Like, I mean, there are some visuals that are really spectacular. You know, the acting is kind of dated. You watch it now and, we, you know, acting is more realistic these days. It is a little ham-handed or ham-fisted, right? Like it's, <laughs> a lot of it is on the nose uh, and a little preachy in a way that I don't, no, would be very successful in a movie today. But by the same token, I think the ideas are still really powerful. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is it isn't just a simple black and white, good versus evil. The prosecutors are all wearing white hats and the defendants are all, you know, evil men wearing black hats. They try to portray both the prosecution and the defense is much more three-dimensional than, you know, in, in a lot of kind of comparable movies. And, and here we could actually contrast it with Inherit the Wind, which I actually find has aged even worse because yeah. for whatever reason, you know, the Williams Jennings Bryant and Clarence Darrow are, are really just one-dimensional uh, stick figures. <laughs> um, right. You don't see that in this movie. I think the fact that, they were so forthright about acknowledging, you know, in a sense, the selectivity of the prosecution is still really relevant. You know, it, as we talked about, it doesn't sugarcoat the fact that the U.S. was sterilizing people that were seen as mentally defective, that there wasn't systematic racism against, you know, African-Americans and a whole bunch of other people 
not mass murder. You know, there was never a Holocaust in the United States, but the but the movie makes quite clear that particularly these men were on trial for things that they were not the only ones to have done. And I think that's still a very relevant and valuable lesson because, you know, there are too many movies like Zero Dark Thirty, <laughs> which are just cartoons that in service of an incredibly reactionary political agenda. You know, hopefully so many of the movies that we see today that are deeper than that, that really do have some gray, are in some way indebted to Stanley Kramer and, and movies like Judgment at Nuremberg. I hope so, anyway. Yeah. And if not, they should go back and watch a movie like this to see actually how you can add some nuance to, to events that really do seem to be on the surface black and white. It does really get into the gray areas and it, it does really pack a lot in. I mean, you mentioned the selectivity issues. I mean, the other selectivity issue, which they they point to, the defense council is very good at hitting them, is the use of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm-hmm. firebombing of, I think they refer to the firebombing of Dresden, but certainly the bombing in Japan, what might be called the war crimes of the Allied power. So the film really does get into these issues. And those are surfaced today when we're talking about Russia's aggression in Ukraine. What about the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003? So it does really echo with, I think, a lot of the issues around war crimes trials that we confront now. Yeah, and I'm glad it does. And, you know, in some ways it does it better than the actual judgments of the Nuremberg military tribunals themselves, because I can't remember which trial it is off the top of my head, but a number of defense counsel did exactly this during the trials, which is bring up Dresden, bring up Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I I wish I could remember which judgment it was, but there is an unbelievably shockingly awful defense of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in these judgments in a way that really just makes you cringe. And it's so clearly mental gymnastics to avoid the obvious, which was the U.S. had committed war crimes as well. Again, not as on the par with the Nazis, but, you know, we're certainly far from coming to these trials with clean hands. And I'm very glad that Kramer had the foresight and the, and the fortitude <laughs> to include yeah. that in this film. I think the film would have aged extraordinarily badly if it didn't have those nuances, because, you know, we, we just, we don't do the kind of morality play in the same way. The world is too obviously gray. Maybe Ukraine is changing that for us, but, but that's what I think gives it its lasting value. Yeah, it does. And some of the performances, at least I think are strong. I mean, Spencer Tracy, I think does get the complexity. He's, he's an old school actor, but when I watched it again, I was really just kind of impressed by his skill working through some of the issues that he had to in terms of reaching the judgment. You mentioned you saw this a long time ago. Has anything changed about how you see the film now from when you first saw it? No, not particularly. I mean, again, I think I probably, I, I do think that some of the filmmaking has aged poorly and I probably more recognize that now, but I, I still think the messages are, are, are basically the same. Again, it's a little on the nose and I think I noticed that more now. But you have to historicize these things, right? You can't compare the level of exposition in this movie to a movie in 2023. You have to compare it to 1961. And by by those standards, this was an incredibly sophisticated, nuanced movie. So after 50 plus years uh, of history, and for you, after multiple acclaimed books, a career in the field of international criminal law, it still holds up fairly well in terms of the substance, I guess, even if the movie and the some aspects of the movie seem dated. Yeah, no, I, I really do think in that sense, it remains a very nuanced portrayal of a war crimes trial. I wish we had more <laughs> similarly nuanced dramatizations. 
Uh, just a last question. You could go back on the set. If you were sitting on set in 1961 or whenever the film was actually shot around that time and Stanley Kramer read of your work and said, you know, Kevin, come down. Uh, <laughs> what should I include? What should I not include in this film to make it more accurate, but not lose any dramatic force, right? Because a lot of ideas will say this, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have had the ex parte conversations between the judge and other, the prosecutor, but I'm making a movie, he might say. So what would you what would you tell him? You know, I, I think in general did a pretty good job given the need to to simplify, right? I mean, obviously there were 15 defendants at the actual justice trial, but we don't want to see in a movie, we don't want to see 15 defendants, you know, or much less listen to them all. I have to say, and I I certainly don't blame Stanley Kramer for not doing this because he probably wasn't even aware. It would have been nice if they had a female prosecutor because there was a female prosecutor in the justice trial. There were female prosecutors and I think all but three, maybe four of the 12 trials. Um, and not just sitting there, you know, taking notes and looking pretty. They were deeply involved in preparing the cases. They cross-examined. They did direct examinations. A couple of them, even not in the justice trial, even got involved in, you know, in opening and closing arguments. It would have been nice to see a little bit more of, of that because Telford Taylor was really ahead of his time. Uh, you know, in, in terms of this, he very, very actively sought out women prosecutors and analysts and translators, etc. He did the same thing with Jews. There was a lot of pushback, both in Germany and by the anti-Semitic right in the U.S., about the fact that Jews were allowed to serve at the Nuremberg trials, because, of course, they were all too biased to possibly uh, be involved in these trials. And he wanted to have nothing <laughs> uh, with that criticism. But we always see as a bunch of kind of white male <laughs> prosecutors. And, and, and that's just kind of unfortunate, I, I think. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. And that's true of other justice movies at the time, but 12 Angry Men, for example, a reflection of its time in the sense that it's all male in that way. But I, it's a really good point because women were involved in these ways in the trial as professionals. So that would have been something that would have been good to include. And then just on the Telford Taylor point and to where we started at the top, Ben Friends was a Hungarian born Jew and yeah. he was a prosecutor. So that's a, a really good point about Telford Taylor as well. Yeah. So. I think one of the things I would praise again, though, is like such an enlightened portrayal of the defense attorney. Again, it's a little bombastic, but I think he deserved, you know, Maximilian Schell, his, his Academy Award. Even today, we demonize defense attorneys who are defending these people. In 1961, he didn't demonize the defense attorney defending the Nazis. And as well, he shouldn't, because there were so many incredibly skilled, dedicated defense attorneys at the Nuremberg trials and, and the actual, you know, one of the ones, Dr. Servadius in, in the justice case, he represented five or six defendants in various trials. And he was just incredibly skilled, dedicated attorney. And so I'm really, again, I'm really happy that Kramer was so ahead of his time in making that choice. Because it would have been very easy to make the easier <laughs> artistic yeah. And it's an important legacy of Nuremberg itself. I mean, this is you know something I've written about. Going back to Justice Jackson at the International Military Tribunal, the importance of having a defense, right, and having a fair trial and the role of defense counsel and not having show trials. I mean, there are show trials in the sense that there's a dramatic effect, but the trials themselves need to be fair. And I think, you know, the defendants, by and large, got a fair trial in the movie, even if there were some prejudicial material shown. Yeah. And, and I think many of them would have admitted it. <laughs> you know, there was, I can't remember which defense attorney, but one of the defense attorneys who'd been involved in a few of, of the Nuremberg military tribunal trials, he was asked about that. 
by a journalist, I think in the early 50s. And he said, you know, we didn't always necessarily agree with the verdicts, but we can't really disagree with the the efforts that the judges went to to give the defendants a fair trial. And that, again, is pretty amazing praise. And you know this as well as anyone, like contrasts fairly well with, say, the military commissions that we have these days, you know, in Guantanamo. We were able to give Nazis fundamentally fair trials, <laughs> and yet we're not able to give the chauffeur for Osama bin Laden a fair trial. I mean, that is really one of, I think, the most distressing, uh, you know, erosions in American justice that we can point to. And again, if you can prosecute Nazis fairly, you sure as hell can prosecute members of Al-Qaeda fairly. I couldn't agree more. And uh, well, we certainly could have a whole number of podcasts or other podcasts about those issues as well. But I, I think that's exactly right. And the film captures that and, and does a good job with that basic principle about the right of a fair trial. And if you're going to have trials for atrocity crimes, they should be fundamentally fair. Kevin, it's been a pleasure having you on today and talking with you about the film, about Nuremberg as a leading expert in the world on this subject. So I want to thank you again for coming on Law and Film. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Like I said, I spend all my time talking about, you know, Russian aggression against Ukraine these days. So it's nice to go back to trials that are very near and dear to my heart and a movie that, you know, as I said, because I have the, the poster on my wall is also near and dear to my heart. Great. Well, thanks again.